Hello, folks. Welcome back to Three Right Turns, the progressive podcast from a conservative perspective where I don't know what to make of what passes for discourse of late. You know, I see Joe Biden's been in the uh, the office, been in the White House for less than 100 days. Same as the Democratic control over both houses. And it seems like not all of our problems have been fixed yet. I mean, what's the deal? What's the holdup? Why isn't Joe Biden doing more for us? Why doesn't he go across the street and just shake those senators, slap them around, make him do what he wants, whip those votes? I've never on this podcast said that Joe Biden would solve all of our problems. I never did it. I did not. I said he would be better than a second Trump term. Sure. I promised you that he would disappoint us. He would let us down. That even if he tried his best to pass all the policies that his campaign ran on, it's not going to fix all the problems because a lot of the problems we have in this country are, are kind of with us. It's us as Americans. Many of us as Americans don't think that we can do much better if we can do better at all than what we're doing right now. They don't think that we can do as well as the Nordic countries we've talked about. They don't think that we could handle the pandemic as well as South Korea or New Zealand. In fact, many of our fellow Americans think that we should be doing much, much less. That doing more for people is going to make them lazy and, and dependent and it's going to wreck the economy. This lie being repeated over and over and over again for generations is, is why we're here. So I've never said that Joe Biden or any Democrat or any politician anywhere can solve all of our problems. What have I consistently said? People We've got 30 years of hard political work ahead of us. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be adversity. And even if things generally go our way, we're staring down monumental problems in terms of environment, job losses due to automation, lots more beyond the monumental problems of the education system, healthcare, disinformation campaigns, racial inequality, all these things that we're dealing with right now. Got so many problems. I've said that if you think that you can elect Biden, and kind of go back to sleep. Hey, politics are going to turn back to normal. Everything's fine again. We're going to be right back where we were in 2016 and worse in four years. Do we want to be politically effective? Do you want to be politically effective? What does that even mean? It's something I've been pondering ever since the last election and runoff in Georgia because, you know, try to tell people register to vote, get out and vote. Uh, educate yourself on the local races and your state races, but but go out and vote. Jesus, let's beat this guy. So so that's pretty politically effective, you know, recapturing the White House, the Senate. But what do we do now as individuals? What's the best way to move the needle? Well, let's talk about some stuff regarding Biden's first half a hundred days. Two thousand dollar COVID relief checks. Boy, this has been a problem. Are they enough? If we get the $2,000 checks, are they enough? No, I would say no, of course not. Many countries around the world, smaller countries, less wealthy countries, well, countries with less resources, have spent far more on their citizens to keep them at home and keep them cared for, uh, keep them employed, keep their economies and their small businesses from collapsing. So could America have done more with all of our resources, all of our wealth? Sure, of course, of course. But it's also clear to me that these $2,000 checks and the debate around them, 
they're kind of at the ragged edge of what's politically possible in today's climate. And that sucks. It sucks that we can't do more, that our politicians are not willing to do more, that our fellow Americans are nervous about us doing more. But what can we do to change it? Well, let's see. You, of course, will recall that this $2,000 checks was a big part of the campaign in Georgia. Both Warnock and Ossoff, the two gentlemen who went on to win as senators in the January runoff election, as part of their campaign, uh, they ran on mailing out $2,000 checks for round two of COVID relief. At the time, the Republican counteroffer was $600. And the only reason they're offering that is because it was before this election and it was neck and neck and they're afraid they're going to lose it. They gave nothing. But the Democrats pledged to send that $2,000. Again, still not enough, but clearly more generous than $600, by three times more generous. So a week before the Georgia election, Republicans agreed to send out their version of the relief bill, uh, trying to, you know, 600, it's, it's, it's something, uh, trying to sway a few voters. Uh, and that triggered them uh, sending out their $600 checks, those meager $600 checks, you know. But after Warnock and Ossoff won, the talk from the Biden administration was about getting the other $400 they promised you. And people are right away, what the fuck? Where are $2,000 checks, Joe? It was all I heard people talking about in the places I frequent on the internet. And I thought I was losing my mind. Sure, you can make an argument that if people said they'd give you a $2,000 check, that's what they said they'd do. $1,400 isn't $2,000. It's true. $1,400 checks are not $2,000 checks. Not it's, it's not one check that says $2,000. But also, really? I got into so many Twitter arguments on this. I, you'll recall one of my New Year's resolutions was not to argue on Twitter. But this is the podcast, and I'm about to start the argument. Let's say that we all work at a co-op. You know, those worker paradises I'm always advocating for as baby steps towards a better, freer future. So we all work at this co-op and there's a big CEO and a board of a, a directors election coming up because all of us workers see we get a say on who's leading us. This is a more democratic workplace than you might be used to. But the, a big issue in our upcoming election is a matter of workers raises for the last 30 years. Wages in our company have been stagnant, but the company turns out it's making record amounts of money. Both the old CEO and the board and the potential new ones running against them agree that we, the workers, deserve more money. But they disagree on how much that should be. The old CEO and board say we should get six hundred dollars more on our salary. The new peeps say they're going to get us $2,000. The week before the election, an attempt to curry favor, the old CEO signs an immediate $600 bonus. Look look what I've done for you right, right lately. On the other hand, the new team keeps maintaining, vote for us, we're going to get you that $2,000 raise. You'd think that workers would have an easy time deciding between the bosses that will pay them $600 versus $2,000. But you know, I get it. You know, maybe the folks that prefer to $600 CEO think that we really can't afford the $2,000. Yeah, they'd love to have a $2,000 raise, but they don't want it if uh, five years down the line, they bankrupted the company and they find themselves out of a job. I can understand that. Now, there's, there's tons of data and evidence and financial reports on the company's health that suggests we can easily afford this, probably more. We could do far more if we gave pay cuts to the employees at the very top of the pay scale. Maybe we should look at that, you know, but. People have a right to be skeptical. People have a right to be more conservative than, than what I think they should do. 
based on the statistics and, and research and the company opening up their books, right? Clearly, employees making the big bucks have a right to try to persuade their fellow workers that they deserve to make that much money. They don't need to take a pay cut, you know? Hell, they might even leave if the company tries to cut their, their wages because, you know, they're, they're highly effective employees. Who knows what a company would do without them? Seems like a nightmare. But at any rate, the CEO and the board proposing the $2,000 pay raise, they just win a squeaker of an election, man. Like 51% of the employees preferred them. They barely make it in there. They win in just the slimmest of majorities. And on that day, as they take the podium up in, I don't know, what is this, a break room, a cafeteria? Uh, do, do, is, is this co-op got a, a whole uh, conference room? Like big theater style conference room. Anyway, all the employees are up there. The new regime is up there and they're saying, we're going to get you the rest of that $2,000 raise. The room goes silent and boos start to break out. You fucking liars. People scream. What's this? The rest of this $2,000 business? Well, you see, they say you already got the $600. The, the old bosses gave it to you last week. You got the $600 raise. It was in last week's paycheck. Now we're going to give you the rest Boo! The boos go louder. What the fuck? If I'm an employee at this company, or I'm any one of the newly elected board or the CEO, I think this is nuts. Worse to some of the people in the incoming board that were kind of shaky on this whole $2,000 deal. They kind of thought that was on the ragged edge of what the company could afford. And right or wrong, there was quite a bit of arm twisting that was required to get them to go along and sign off on this $2,000 messaging in the campaign. And what kind of message are they getting now? Might it be that no matter what they say or do, there's going to be a predictably loud and maybe ignorant response that can be safely ignored because it's going to be the same story at the same volume no matter what happens. You think we can afford a $2,000 raise? Fuck you. Make it $2,600. Never mind that we won an election where the $2,000 raise won by just 1%. But let's say the board, because just because of optics, they're like, well, you know, we said $2,000. They did keep the posters up on the wall in the cafeteria that said $2,000 raise. $2,000, not $1,400. Yeah, 14 plus six. Sure, but whatever. We'll get you that $2,000. we are we're going to do it because it, it looks bad, and we don't want people thinking about this for years. It's bad optics. We can afford it. Maybe we'll piss off a board member or two that we might need for a crucial vote down the line but fuck it $2,600 checks surely all the employees are happy now but no now people are saying fuck you we want $2,000 a month $2,000 checks recurring I mean yeah I I would love to have a UBI Uh, I was supporting of the Andrew Yang's fairly kind of controversial $1,000 a month deal now we want $2,000 okay if I was an employee at this company I guess I'm awful nervous about the next election cycle for this board because we barely held this $2,000 coalition together to win by the slimmest majorities. I hear whispers that some of the departments who were very anti $2,000 raises are now organizing to make it difficult for the employees that were pro $2,000 raises to even vote in the next election, playing all kinds of hijinks, moving the ballot boxes from cubicle to cubicle. Uh, you know, in the in the departments that are fifty five percent men, they're putting it in the women's de- the restroom. They're they're playing all kinds of dirty tricks. And now the large raise coalition, the one to two thousand dollars, is all fractured into splinter factions, arguing about whether fourteen hundred dollars the same as two thousand dollars, it's the same as it's twenty six hundred dollars, or y'all thinking too small. We need two thousand dollars a month extra. 
it's a mess. And what's worse, now that the screaming and yelling are at a peak, internal arguments inside the new board are limiting who even gets that raise. Our company makes $21 trillion a year. This comprehensive raise package costs about $1.9 trillion. And we're screwing over employees in middle management so they get no raise at all. That's shaving a whopping $19 billion off the, uh, off, off the top. 12 million, turns out, employees in this company are not going to get that raise that they were promised to save $19 billion out of a $1.9 trillion budget. Doesn't seem to make sense. But as this is happening, everybody's still arguing over the $1,400 versus the $2,000 versus the $2,600. People are openly talking about abandoning the $2,000 coalition for the next election cycle, not bothering to vote at all. Because, you know, the $2,000 guys, the $600 guys, they're all the same. And I'm screaming inside of my head because, of course, I do work for this enterprise. Same as you do. If you're listening to this podcast as an American, it's this is the United States we've been talking about. How do you feel about all this? I don't I don't want to get down on anybody. If you're one of those $2,000 isn't $1,400 people, by the way, I, I don't know how to do this perfectly. I'm wondering this question aloud. How are we to be politically effective as citizens? What does that mean? And I don't know. Do do people really think that $2,000 means $2,600? I mean, if if we need more money, if we want more money, we deserve more money. Why don't we just say that? $2,000 is great, but you know, other countries did more. Other countries are not as wealthy as us. Other countries not hit as hard by COVID. I don't I don't know why this has to be about broken promises and lies. And if you're willing to twist and distort things, you know, see things from a skewed perspective, I guess, just to make an effective point. What happens when promises are actually broken? What happens? How how do we fight for those 12 million Americans who are not going to get the raise at all? I don't know. Maybe we don't feel sorry for individuals making over seventy five thousand dollars or I guess eighty thousand is the total cutoff. Or couples making over $150,000. But a lot of couples probably in San Francisco and Seattle and New York City and other large cities that kind of probably feel betrayed because they're not going to get their $2,000. They're not going to get the $1,400. They're going to get the $600. You know, they're not going to get the full $2,000. These people aren't poor, but... They're probably struggling. They probably got to be pretty careful with their money. They're probably working pretty hard to raise a family in those cities. And they were promised some money. How do we get Congress to do what we tell them to? Who is we? Is we an arch Republican living in Manhattan? Is it a social Democrat living in Austin, Texas? Is we a conservative Baptist living in Kentucky? I mean, I live in Ohio. How the hell am I going to get Joe Manchin, the most conservative Democrat in the Senate, from the extremely conservative state of West Virginia, very poor state, by the way, what am I going to do to get him to do what I think he should do? If he gets replaced by a progressive leftist in next West Virginia Senate primary, which is kind of a long shot, honestly, but if that progressive leftist wins miraculously, goes up against Republican and gets destroyed in the general in favor of some QAnon Republican, have we been politically effective We pushed the Democrats in West Virginia left, but we lost the state. Honestly, I I guess I don't care what people scream about on Twitter and on the news. If you think you can move people effectively like Joe Manchin left, 
You think you can pe- keep people like Senator Kristen Cinema in Arizona from doing whatever the hell she's doing by screaming on Twitter and every once in a while making shit up from something you think you read on a headline? I mean, go ahead, knock yourself out. But when people say they're not going to vote next time, because why bother? Because both these parties are the same. I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, it's possible that we're not going to get the $1,400. Maybe it turns out to be $1,200 by the time these people do their handshakes and their backroom deals. But make no mistake, that's still more than $600. It's not enough, but it's more. And a $400 a week federal unemployment benefit, which is still going, which will continue to go on for the foreseeable future, wouldn't be happening if the last election didn't go our way. If the last election didn't go our way, both nationally and Georgia, we wouldn't be getting any more money. You know, $2,000 isn't enough. No, but it is better than zero. It will help a lot of families. And we fought like hell to not get zero. And we should be proud that we did. I mean, yeah, we can be a little disappointed. We can hold our political. But like, where where is this futility I'm, I'm seeing coming from? Because I, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is the, the great tactic uh, to claim you're not going to vote publicly, to pressure people in power, push them left. And at the end, maybe you vote for the best options you have before you. Maybe this is a negotiation tactic. I don't know. But but how do we actually get better options in front of us? I mean, the conclusion in a democracy is simply that we need more people to vote for what we want and to support that and support candidates that will give us what we want. Not what we can settle for, but what we want, what we can afford, what we deserve. And there's only three ways to do that. You can keep the other people from voting, which, you know, is more immoral and illegal. They're doing it to us. But shit, I don't want to keep them from voting. I want all of our people to be able to vote. I want all their people to be able to vote. And whoever has the most votes wins. Two, you can get people who don't vote to go out and vote. And I'm sure hordes of people complaining about how worthless voting is and how all the politicians are the same. I'm sure it's going to do wonders for getting to vote out or three. You can get out there and start changing people's minds and supporting better candidates. And yes, we're back to that topic. The old hobby horse here on three right turns. You got to get out there. You got to get out there and talk with your neighbors, your families, your friends. Got to start showing up to city halls. We got to get engaged with grassroots movements. We have to show solidarity with people protesting and striking for their rights and wages. You know, I can't do shit to Joe Manchin. That's the reality. I can't really change his mind. I can't change the people of West Virginia. But I'm friends and family with lots of conservatives and conservative-minded liberals even here in Ohio and Indiana. And, you know, I can praise my generally praiseworthy senator, Sherrod Brown. And I can certainly heap scorn on my other generally worthless senator, Rob Portman, I can get involved in my neighborhood and my city. I can fight for change where I'm close to, you know, you, you get the picture better candidates locally might lead to better candidates statewide might lead to better candidates nationally might lead to better politics all around. Is that politically effective? I mean, I don't know. I, I've heard smart people that have been around for a lot longer in politics than I have been say that it is say that's how you get things done. Makes a lot of sense. So I'm in the progress of trying it out. I'll let you know how it goes over the next 30 years. It is harder than dunking on Democrats on Twitter, though. It is harder than saying, fuck 600, fuck 2000, fuck 2600. We want $2,000 monthly recurring, $4,000 recurring. Hell, I would love that. I think in 30 years we could get 
you know, $2,000 a month recurring. We get twice that if things go right for us in the economy and automation and some science and advances. And we, we divvy up the pie fairly. We can do that. But right now we can't have it because not enough of us want it or think that we can have it. And we have to change that. Barely 51% of us think that we can have this $2,000, but fortunately, 51% of us did. And that election had consequences because just today, Saturday, as there's recording the podcast, the Senate unilaterally, with zero Republican support, passed the $1.9 trillion COVID stimulus. We talked a little bit about what some of that stuff was in a couple of weeks ago. So they didn't get you those $2,600 checks, but they did get... Most of this, anyway, the fourteen hundred dollars that'll make us two thousand dollars whole with the six hundred dollars you already got in December. And that's not all in the American Rescue Plan, if they're calling it. It's got direct payments of fourteen hundred dollars for working class Americans. It aims to cut childhood poverty in half by extending uh, tax uh, tax credits for, for children for at least a year. It's going to offer housing assistance for the 12 million Americans who are struggling to pay their rent. That's been a big concern. The foreclosure apocalypse unemployment benefits are boosted through September. It's got funding to safely reopen our schools, increase funding for vaccine distribution. By the way, have you heard every American's going to have a dose of vaccine by the end of May if they want it? Hopefully they want it. It's going to provide additional funding for vaccine production. It's going to provide relief for restaurants, relief for small businesses. It's a pretty nice plan. It's a pretty comprehensive plan. It's scheduled to be passed in the House early next week. It's expected to anyway. And we'll see if there's some kind of horrible other shoe that ends up dropping. But this is unambiguously good news. And it absolutely would not have happened had we not taken the Senate and the White House. Next, I want to talk about the $15 minimum wage and how it's apparently stalling. When I was a teenager, and you'll remember, I've been fascinated by politics since I was like 13 years old. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I was a Jehovah's Witness. I wasn't having sex or doing drugs, but I did watch the nightly news and listen to NPR. Had to get my kicks in where I could find them. But back then, expert consensus among economists reflected the idea that a minimum wage was bad, actually, and raising it could be disastrous for the economy as a whole. Among libertarians especially, and I used to fuck with libertarians, it was conventional wisdom that minimum wage was, in fact, anti-poor. Well, sure, you could artificially raise the price of labor to 8 or 9 or $10, whatever crazy numbers liberals want to, they'd say, knowingly. And that would be great for the workers who got to keep their jobs, but the invisible hand of the market cannot be denied. Firms are going to have to cut workers to keep wages high, so many more people would be unemployed making zero for everyone making the wage that's slightly more. Worse, they'd say, their eyebrows furrowed, frowny faces, because they've really thought the matter through and they cared deeply about poor people. Worse, having more cash suddenly means increased demand for goods, which sparks inflation and just swallows up that wage increase that the poor just got. And it's going to disproportionately affect them because they're the ones have to spend all their paycheck on food and clothes. Suddenly the price on that skyrockets, renting apartments, that kind of thing. Good job, liberals. They would say you've just put millions on the unemployment line for no real benefit. And I actually believed that was gospel until about five years ago when I started reading articles that suggested that this wasn't some kind of settled economic law, this supply, demand, wages, all that kind of stuff. Uh, 
the consensus among experts, in fact, had started to shift. The American Economic Association has tracked economic expert opinion on minimum wage since 1978. Back then, 90% of survey respondents of all economists agreed that minimum wages substantially lowered employment among low-wage workers. In 1992, that number fell to 72%. In 2000, it was 46%. In 2015, it's just 26%. The vast majority... 74 to 26% of economists now think that there will not be significant unemployment effects with modest increases to the minimum wage. We'll talk about that word modest here in a minute. But back in my youth, the preponderance of the evidence suggested that any amount of minimum wage was bad, let alone raising it. But expert consensus changes in the face of new evidence. More evidence from other states and countries that had adopted higher wages against the consensus, uh, and they were not facing the dreaded unemployment effects. Studies that drew previous unemployment correlations were found to be flawed. Mathematical models were superseded by actual data. What do I mean by this actual data? Do you know how much a burger flipper at McDonald's gets paid in Denmark? $22 an hour. They also get six weeks of paid vacation a year, life insurance, a year's paid maternity leave, a pension plan, universal medical insurance, and paid sick leave. Do you know how much extra a Big Mac cost in Denmark? Hold on to your butts, buckle up. Danes pay an eye-watering 35 cents more for their Big Macs. And they don't even have a legally mandated minimum wage. The Burger Flipper Union is so strong in Denmark that that's just how much they get negotiated. For an extra 35 cents a burger. Boy, it would be nice to have that kind of solidarity amongst labor here in our country. That kind of strength and union membership and numbers that we could get fair wages without having to count on our politicians to, you know, just give it to us. But alas, we've collectively decided that the right to work, quote unquote, is more important than the right to dignity. And your employment. And it's going to take us probably 30 years to claw back from that position. Check out the New York Times article in the show notes if you want further infuriating comparisons to Denmark. By the way, United States, lowest minimum wage. Not just a minimum wage that's too low. We have the lowest minimum wage than any other developed country. It's true. It's true. But you know what? I didn't know that that economic consensus had started to shift until, like I said, five years ago. Even though it had shifted 10 years before that, it was overwhelming at the point five years ago. Yet in every conversation I have with people that oppose raising the minimum wage, and I've had several by now, they recite what they would call basic economic principles. You fool. You fool. Don't you know if you raise the money, does this and it does that and the unemployment, the price of bread goes up. It's, it's obvious. Didn't you go? Didn't you pay attention to econ in high school? It's what I hear. That's what I hear. Most people haven't kept up with the discussion. If I hadn't been going through the process of questioning everything that I'd been taught, I doubt I'd have revisited it until it was staring me in the face, you know? But on the other hand, you also got leftists out here saying that the minimum wage should be $50 an hour. Unfortunately, while that would be amazing, it's the economic consensus that while modest Minimum wage increases do not spike the unemployment rate. Apparently, there's a tipping point where this stops being the case. And that tipping point is right around $25 an hour. 
That's where more people lose their jobs than benefit from the extra pay. And it's interesting that McDonald's pays their Danish workers right around that number. It's also right around the minimum wage that we had in this country in 1968. If we had kept that uh, minimum wage up with inflation and with increases in worker, worker productivity we've had in the last 50 years. Now, Maybe the economic consensus right now is wrong. Maybe we could go past $25. Maybe we could get to $50 an hour like it was before. You know, they were wrong before. Maybe some brave, intrepid states, maybe here in the United States. Uh, I doubt it. We're struggling to get 15, but maybe around the world, maybe Denmark, maybe the burger flippers can go for 30 and, and prove us wrong. But again, this is America and we're having trouble with 15. So. The House passed a federal minimum wage bill for $15, and it stalled in the Senate. We've talked a lot about reconciliation. This legislative process allows select legislation to be passed with a simple majority vote instead of a 60-vote supermajority normally required to get bills passed in the Senate. Well, the Democrats uh, tried and, and failed to get the uh, bill considered under that process. It turns out the Senate parliamentarian a position that every 20 years people deeply care about, uh, turns out, said that it doesn't qualify. You can't do reconciliation for this. Fire the Senate parliamentarian, people cried. That's that what our people said. It's as easy. Just fire it. And apparently, there's some merit to that. 20 years ago, the Republicans fired the Senate parliamentary, uh, parliamentarian that said that they couldn't use reconciliation to pass through a massive Bush-era tax cut. And they said, fuck that. You're out. We're going to pass it. I mean, why not? I actually looked at, looked into it. Um, it passed on a 50-50 straight party line vote. Dick Cheney uh, cast the tie-breaking vote, and we got the, the big tax cuts. Uh, at the time, Democrats didn't say anything but wring their hands and say, what a, what a destructive thing this was to our political process. And, and like I said, wring their hands. I don't know. Maybe it is time to make Mitch McConnell, as the minority leader, wring his withered dead hands about something for a change. But regardless, a week later, after we've had some finagling, we had a vote held in the Senate to waive procedural objections to add the $15 minimum wage hike to the now long-delayed COVID relief bill. It has, has been a while uh, since they promised those $2,000 checks, you know. Bernie Sanders spear, spearheading this effort, and it failed. It failed. And ha! Ha, some said, this proves that Democrats and Republicans are the same. You work so hard to elect Democratic senators. And now for what? All that Warnock and Ossoff stuff for what? And again, this is kind of insane to me. And again, I find myself screaming inside my head because Republicans lined up all 50 of them voting no. That's all of them. 42 Democrats voted yes. That's all but seven and one independent that caucuses with with Democrats. Eight people from more conservative places vote no. And suddenly elections don't matter again. Really? The focus for the outrage is not on this 50 Republicans who unified to fuck over the country, but on a handful of Democratic defectors who also. Yeah, yeah, they also voted to fuck the country. Some with apparent glee. I, I don't know if you saw this clip of Kristen Cinema bopping up and giving the thumbs down at the curtsy and all that, patting Mitch McConnell on the back, making sure he saw her as, as an apparent mockery of the John McCain, you know, killing the attempt to destroy the ACA. I, I don't know what the fuck is going on with that. It's a bad look. I really hate 
Because I feel like this podcast is going to come across as lecturing people on optics. I really hate doing that to people when you've got senators doing this shit, whatever that is. We need to get at least 51 votes to get things passed in the Senate. All Democrats have to go along with it, along with the uh, VP Harris as a tiebreaker. And a minimum, we can only pull this reconciliation, this 51 vote pass deal a few times a year under very limited circumstances. If we can't get that, if we can't get that done, then we're not going to get the $15 an hour change we want, period. It's not going to happen. I got in an argument with people on this and they're saying, well, you just got to whip votes. Whip votes, people say. How? You watching too much House of Cards? You think Dick Durbin's got video of like Joe Manchin choking a hooker to death and his like leather briefcase of evilness? You know, the, the problem is that the people of West Virginia don't want $15 an hour. Maybe they think that's too much because that's a lot of money for West Virginia. They don't live in L.A. They don't live in New York City. Maybe they think that their companies can't afford that. Their small businesses are going to have a hard time paying that. And you know what? Maybe it is kind of crazy to have one minimum wage for a country as large and economically diverse as the United States. A couple making full-time minimum wage here in Ohio would be, be doing pretty well, to be honest. Not great. I mean, they're not wealthy, but, you know, they're, they're, they're getting by. With ACA subsidies and child care benefits that Biden's proposing, sounds like we're getting, they're going to be doing even better. But again, in Seattle and L.A. and San Francisco, New York City, they'd be barely getting by. So again, is the problem Joe Manchin, is Christian cinema, or is it the people in West Virginia that need convincing? Why don't more people know about the economic consensus on minimum wage now? Why don't more people know about how much you get paid to flip burgers in Denmark? Why doesn't that come up in the public discourse as much as you think it should? These are great, surefire kind of silver bullet argument winners. I mean, imagine the freedom you'd have living in Denmark, knowing that you're working for a shitty company and, you know, maybe you're getting paid $30 an hour and you got to swallow a lot of shit, but you get sick of it anytime, anytime you can just walk down to McDonald's, get paid $22 an hour, just flipping burgers and keep your six weeks vacation, keep your health care, keep your pension. That must be incredibly freeing. That must probably lead to companies treating their employees better because, again, they can just bop down the street and check out and flip burgers if you give them too much shit, you know? Why don't people know about this? What's more politically effective? I ask you tweeting that Democrats and Republicans are the same. That's why voting is futile. And this climate where we're winning with razor thin margins, where gerrymandering is going to make it harder, where voter suppression is going to make it harder. We're trying to tell people that elections don't matter. Or educating people on what we could do if we set our sights higher, what other people are already doing. I don't know. How do do you feel about that? It seems broadly the consensus view among political analysts now that like $12 an hour, that's going to be a shoe in the old Joe Manchin to sign that in a heartbeat. If that's what we get out of this, say $12 indexed to inflation, I think that's what he supports. Is that a failure? It's not going to be $15. It's not going to be $15 that Biden wanted to do. But if Trump were still in office and McConnell still led the Senate, we would get nothing, no $2,000 checks, no minimum wage hike, nothing. 
What if the good people in Congress negotiate out of their minds and they do better than what the kind of political consensus is? Maybe they get $14 indexed to inflation. Is that a failure? Still not 14. But would it still not be worth fighting like hell to get Democrats elected so we get 14? It's a hell of a lot more than we're getting now. Today, I woke up and saw a prominent online leftist in his Twitter timeline saying the fight for $15 is over. Now the fight for $20 begins. I mean, what the hell? In what world are we going to get $20 an hour? We just failed to get 15. You know, I mean, maybe maybe it's not time to give up. Maybe we got four more years. We got two years with this Senate. Maybe we can get 14. Uh, we get $15 an hour later on. But right now in this world, I don't think that gets it done. I think we live in a world where we got to work hard. We got to work local. We got to convince people, win arguments. That's what I think. Again, this whole 30 years of hard political work that we got ahead of us. We can't take any time off. So we got $2,000 checks. I talked about that. Minimum wage. Lots of disappointment here. Lots of like lots of uh, things to be concerned about. Some things to be happy about. We did get those, the, those the $1,400 checks. But now I want to talk about something that's, that's really potentially touchy and, and painful. Um, a subject subject I care a lot about, uh, something I talked a lot about last year, the, the, the kids in cages. You know, we think about Trump's legacy in this regard, all those pictures of kids jammed in chain link cages, no blankets on hard concrete floors, no water, no food, inadequate health care. What a bastard that Trump people rightfully made comparisons to concentration camps, internment camps, evoking some of the worst horrors of the 20th century and, and their imagery. And, and it's all on Trump, except turns out many of those photos that so outraged people, those kids in cages, they're from 2014. Reflected Obama and Biden era facilities and treatment. Oh, many people wanted to know it's, it's OK if we put kids in cages, if it's Obama as a president. Right. Lots of people on Twitter with threads like uh, Republicans put kids in cages, angry devil emoji face. Democrats put kids in cages, pride flag, smiley face, fist bump emojis. I mean, you've seen these, right? It's all the same. Just the the Democrats put a little bit more marketing into their message, put a little bit gloss on the heinousness of their evil. And just last week, uh, Joe Biden announced the reopening of some of these problematic facilities. And, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, people were saying we elected Biden and no small part to end this cruel and barbaric practice. Why do we even bother? I voted for Biden. You voted for Biden. We're all responsible for this. There's not enough pride flag emojis in the world that can make this this worth it. Now, then when people came in and said, wait a minute, this isn't the same thing as what Trump did at all. You got to understand there's nuance, there's context. You got to look at the facts. Oh, no, 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 no. The cries of hypocrisy were loud and uncompromising. Oh, we got kids in deluxe cages now. Oh, what an upgrade. Putting kids in cages and saying we feel bad about this. Ooh, 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 it's so, so, it's such a big improvement. We got no other choice to put kids in cages. What a bankruptcy of imagination. Is this politically effective? Is it a great way to look at the situation? Let's look at what's going on in our southern border. Why is it a mess? Well, it's a long, unsecured border. And that in itself isn't a big deal. We got a long, unsecured border with Canada, you know. Uh, that doesn't seem to give us much problems. Uh, the Maple Raiders from the north keep to their side and we keep to ours and everything's everything's good. Uh, 
But, you know, there's some people to say the reason that works is because Canada is filled with a certain type of people, uh, a better class of people, maybe more educated, less ignorant, uh, cleaner, whiter, less brown, you know, the s- south of the border. Opposite of that. Uh, a lot of people have uh, put a lot of stock in that. Now, a lot of you who've listened to Three Right Turns from the beginning uh, might recognize that these arguments are very similar to arguments used against uh, immigrants earlier in America's history, uh, especially the, the German, Dutch, Irish, Italian immigrants of the 19th and 20th century. And if you haven't been listening that long, I, I encourage you to check it out. Three Right Turns, Three Right Turns Six, The Unbearable Whiteness of Being. So you got all those Dutch, uh, German, Irish, Italian immigrants that come to this country to escape persecution, to flee their war-torn countries, to seek better economic opportunities. They crossed an ocean to do so. And our neighbors to the south are doing the same thing right now, except they're crossing deserts and rivers instead of oceans. But here's the thing. Central America has a lot of corruption. There's a lot of violence, a lot of human trafficking, lawlessness, poverty, ineffective government, inadequate to address their problems. But unfortunately, some of these problems, they're at least partially the fault of our U.S. policy, our policy regarding drugs, our policies favoring certain governments for friendly political and economic deals over how well they treat their people or whether they were democratically elected. It's caused a lot of these problems that people are now seeking to get away from. I acknowledge immigration is a tricky subject. Let's back up again. A person in the United States can be born in Mississippi, one of the poorest states in the union, consistently ranked near the bottom in terms of standards of health care, in terms of education, uh, their economy. Across the board, Mississippians, they really just seem to struggle. But anybody in Mississippi can just get up and move to one of the wealthiest states in the union, like California, with nearly double their standards of living. Nobody bats an eye. Black, white, Latino, German, Irish, Italian, whatever. Pick up and move. Mississippi to the, the California. Boom, you're done. It's fine. Why is that? It's because in these United States, all of our states have agreed to certain standards they have in common. We've got standardized IDs. We have standardized taxpayer identification. We've got standardized criminal registrations and, and laws. You know, you can't kill somebody in Mississippi and then pay a coyote to smuggle you across the, the, uh, the Rockies into California and uh, escape prosecution. It's not going to happen. And if you're paying federal taxes in Mississippi, well, you're going to pay the same federal taxes in California. Now you're going to start paying the much higher state and local taxes of California. You most likely speak the same language. That helps. Probably with an accent that makes people judge you unfavorably. Uh, What are you going to do? You probably have similar ideas about what it means to be an American by also recognizing that people from California, and Mississippi also have a lot of different ideas about what that means. And also, crucially, as soon as you establish your address there in California, you're going to be able to vote and start to affect change in your new state just like that. And vice versa. People from California want to move somewhere to lower taxes and slightly more reasonable standards of living say, New Mexico or Texas or the Midwest or Florida, stretch their paycheck a little further. They get a full say in the politics of their new state the day they do so. It's great. It's amazing. That's not to say everybody's happy about the state of affairs. I, I know Texans bitch all the time about people coming from the coasts, fucking up their state, trying to improve their economy, raise their standards of living. I, I, I kid. I kid the Texans. But 
they do complain about it, at least a segment of the Texan politi- uh, population. It's not their favorite thing, but still nobody's stopping Californians at the Texas border or arresting them at DFW, detaining them. You know, they're, they're not they're not they're not there yet anyway. And on the other side of things, man, of late, I've been seeing a lot of ghoulish shit coming from blue staters. Every time a red state needs some bailing out due to uh, economic or environmental disaster, they're like, fuck them, fuck them. Like it's the fault of all people in Texas that their government sucks. Even the ones that hate the government and do everything they can to change things. Fuck them too, I guess, right? You know? But regardless, at the end of the day, there's nothing anyone can do about people moving state to state. All they can do is talk and complain about it because we, in fact, have an absolute freedom to travel and move about this country for whatever reason we like. To make our lives uh, better, to get better working conditions, to be closer to our families, whatever. Obviously, this is not the case when we're talking about people moving uh, to America from the other part of the world. But but why is it? Why is it so different? And this is this always going to be the case? Well, in the glorious Star Trek future that I've always talked about building towards, I think the Earth is going to be united under one central government. Probably should be a federated republic. You know, I don't don't want literally one person in the world controlling everything. But, you know, this loose confederate, kind of like what we got in the United States, it's globally. Shit, let's go full on the expanse and say that 200 years from now, the world is united in governance under auspices of the UN. People then in this world, right, this people from the poorest countries would be able to move freely to the wealthiest countries, establish a place of residence, participate fully in the economy and the politi- political system, the politics of their, their new host country. And while someone from one of the poorest countries might have differences in geography, religion, culture, Etc. I'm sure there'll still be those differences in 200 years. They're also going to have a common idea of what it means to be human. We might also speak an international universal language in common. Maybe it's English. Maybe it's Chinese. Maybe it's Spanish. Hey, Esperanto. Maybe Esperanto will have its time in 200 years. Or maybe it's all going to be moot because we'll have universal translators that we all communicate freely. And we're almost there. I mean, have you seen some of these smartphone apps that can like translate signage in real time and and text to speech and speech to text, all that kind of stuff? It's really cool. Well, let's propose further that the U.N. government provides standards in terms of identification. They host a central uh, criminal database. They've got set global standards for felony crimes. They proposed a modest global tax to pay for the administration of these services. Every country still has sovereignty within their borders and certain domains, just as the states in our union do. Every country sends people to the U.N. General Assembly to represent the country. And you got binding resolutions and laws passed so that everyone has a say. There's a democratic process to elect these people. It's all all great. In the future, why should someone moving from one of the poorest countries on Earth to the richest be any problem at all? Why would that be any different or any larger of a problem than someone moving from Mississippi to California? Now, here's the part where I recognize that we don't live in this idealized world. We don't. We don't have a central organization responsible for enforcing these commonalities and trade, economic standards, criminal codes, those things. So when people want to get into any country, there's a process. I think this process is necessary. I do. And before moving on, I want to say that 
I was also under the impression until just a few years ago that America was like uniquely hard to get into as a country. You know, that our Im- immigration pro- policy is just so picky, so draconian that we're amongst the most immigrant unfriendly place in the world. Raise your hand if you're in the audience right now and you think that right now. It's hard not to, right? All we see in the media is this constant immigration issue. It's been going on since I've been alive. One thing that's been constant in my life growing up, from the weekly readers in elementary school. Did everyone have weekly readers? You know, remember those little news pamphlets we get in like junior high and and, in high school? Was that just a Midwest thing? Ever since I've read these weekly readers, it's always been the Middle East is fucked. Southern borders in crisis. Every 10 years we have recession. Those things are certain as death and taxes. But the problem is America is actually quite easy to get into, at least by the standards of the rest of the world. It's it's true. It's actually true. It's far easier to become an American citizen, to get permanent residence here, to get a green card than it is to get one in Japan, one in France, one in Canada. Last week, I was bitching about the healthcare system of the United States. You know, I was having to go through the process of finding a new insurance company because our rates have gone up 33% over the last two years. Uh, And uh, someone on Twitter is like, yeah, come on up to Canada. And I'm like, well, shit. Yeah, let's see. Canada has a site that will give you a quick score to tell you how easy of time you'll have getting into their country. Uh, and getting the Canadian equivalent of a green card or a permanent residency. And I took the score, I took the test rather, and guess what? I was in the bottom decile. I was in the bottom 10% of scores. Me! I speak English. I got decades of experience working uh, with high-tech, in-demand technologies. I make good money here in America. Uh, I'm in excellent health. But the maple leaf looks at me and says, you know, you don't speak French. Piss those off the people in Quebec. You don't have a job lined up here in Canada. You're in your mid 40s, getting pretty old, far too old to come up here and partake in our glorious social democracy with our free health care, our beaver, our queen based currency. No, 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 old man. Stay there south of the border and wallow in your lack of health insurance. Now, I, I'm, I'm certain that I could throw about $15,000 and a good immigration attorney at this problem, and I'm sure that I could get into Canada without too much trouble. But you know what? That's true for the U.S. as well. It's true for about any place in this world. It's also true that if I were rich or young or had a doctorate and an in-demand skill set from a university, they'd probably be happy to take me and and, and tax me, you know, because I've, I've, I've got a, uh, some earning power I'm bringing to this country. But that's also true of any place on Earth. Desirable people are wanted every place. You know, people, elite people with elite skills and, and certifications. What about average people? What about disadvantaged people? Well, it's not easy for them at all. In many places, it's it's impossible. My point is, if you're an American, you know, I, 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 this is like an anti-doomer podcast, an anti-fucking giving up. It, my, my point is, that if you're an American and you think that we're like uniquely fucked as a country in this regard, it's it's not true. In fact, I think we're better than most. We face some unique challenges, you know, like having that large, mostly unsecured border between us and countries who have, at least in part... Through our own domestic and foreign policies, uh, been impoverished and made incredibly violent and unstable places, and people want to flee that. It's a challenge. Anyway, back to kids in cages. It's the worst. It's 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 sickening. It's horrifying. Those pictures are ta- the, the the idea of these children being ripped away from their parents. It's it's very sad. 
how do we get here? So historically, you know, we've had this immigration issue for generations in America. Historically, people coming across our borders from Central America were men traveling solo to do farm work. They would migrate across in the spring. They'd work our fields. They'd pick our fruits, harvest our crops, really help our economy. It, 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 it cost a hell of a lot more at the grocery store if we didn't have that system in place. And then in the fall, they would migrate back uh, with their pockets full of cash that they could uh, spend with their families in Mexico or other Central American uh, countries. They didn't typically stay in America because why would they? They wanted to earn money and then go back to their loved ones, right? This cycle continued year after year after year. In the 80s and 90s, due to some economic concerns, drug trafficking, good old-fashioned racism, we started massively tightening our borders, making it riskier getting in and out of the country, which started a trend of Latino men hiding out in the country year-round instead of risking the the, the risky border crossing over and over again. And they just send the money back through wire transfers or, or other methods. And this this way, we kind of kicked off and accelerated the immigration and deportation uh, deportation uh, crisis that we're experiencing today. You know, because now instead of just being able to freely move back and forth, uh, they're stuck here and they're uh, hiding out, trying to deport them, trying to catch them at the border. So this became the new normal into in, in the 2000s when smugglers started making big money, bringing people across the border. You know, there's the. Black market, there's a need being unfulfilled, they'll spring up to fill it. And over the years, like any other uh, entrepreneur, they they noticed some tricks of the trade. They got smart about things. Uh, I'm going to quote from a Washington Post article uh, that I got some of this material from about this change. Full article in the show notes, obviously. Anyway, Washington Post reports in the spring of 2014, Central American families, teenagers and children began crossing the border into the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas, turning themselves over to U.S. agents in unprecedented numbers, fleeing poverty, chronic violence and joblessness. The families were also spurned by uh, spurred on by smugglers, telling them that the children that crossed the border could generally avoid lengthy detention and certain deportation. These claims were mostly accurate. So by May of 2014, there were thousands of Central Americans streaming into Texas, overwhelming U.S. agents and leaving Border Patrol Patrol detention cells jam-packed. More than 4,000 adults and children were arriving a day at the peak of this crisis. Border Patrol stations were so overcrowded that agents began using the Sally Port areas outside the stations, little more than outdoor garages, as holding pens. Mothers with babies and young children were left for hours in 90-plus degree heat, sprawled out on concrete floors with little more than bologna sandwiches and Kool-Aid. The Obama administration responded to this outrage by rushing to expand its capacity to handle the new immigration wave at the border, to adapt an infrastructure built to handle single adult men, not families and children. So we have this system that's built to deal with a certain type of immigrant, an adult man that's going across the border to work a job, traveling solo. Suddenly it's dealing with 4,000 men, women, and children a day. There's no room inside. You're stuffing people in garages with in, in the nooks and crannies. Well, what do you do about this? Well, you can't just open the borders and stop trying to keep people out. You know, we talked about all the problems that we have. We don't have a, a, a universality, a common time. Do we have a right to screw All that stuff, okay? We don't have the infrastructure in place. I mean, let, let's stop here and acknowledge that if we go completely open borders, 
we, we're not going to have the ability to vet people coming into our country. They could be killers and terrorists. They could be trafficking women and, and children in the sex trade. This is not Trump. I, I assume that the vast majority of these people are good, not just some being good people. I think most of them are good people. They just want better lives for their families. But would we be better off just letting everyone in and let our criminal system deal with the few bad apples as they're found? Is that going to work? And regardless of how you feel about that answer, the main issue, regardless of how I feel about it, how you feel about it, is that the vast majority of Americans are not in favor of that kind of resolution to the problem. Not right now. If you wanted to go that way, guess what? We're back to our 30 year project of convincing people on the issues. How many issues are we up to now? 10, 12, 15 in this podcast, 30 years might be ambitious, but we got to do that to make progress on this right here, right now. We're stuck much like in our elections, like in a lot of life, we're stuck between choosing variously bad and imperfect options, lesser of two evil situations, which imperfect option did the Obama administration choose? Let's continue reading the article. The government acquired an empty warehouse and a few blocks from the McAllen station and converted it to a sprawling new facility to open July of 2014. It's a pretty quick turnaround. May to July, a place that had a capacity for 1,500 more detainees. This new central processing center was clean, spacious, air-conditioned, and a major improvement over the cramped detention cells and sweltering garage. Garages. To keep demographic, uh, different demographic groups safely apart as standard practice in detention settings, the U.S. Border Patrol used chain link fencing to create partitions in the cavernous warehouse. One area is designed for teenage boys, another with mothers and small children, another for entire family groups, etc., etc. The chain link fencing was cheap and allowed for good ventilation and carried the benefit of allowing agents to supervise the entire facility, avoiding, uh, affording them the ability to have full visibility into the enclosures. So the previous situation is we had mothers and children left outside 90 degree weather sweltering. Now they're in air conditioned. They're under shelter. People are able to be segregated into safe populations and their cases could be processed. I mean, I, I, I do I need to explain why it's a bad idea to have grown men mixed with, um, you know, say teenage girls or women with children or teenagers. Do you understand how like you have to kind of have a separation here for everyone's safety? You have to have visibility, be able to supervise all this stuff. So you, you segment people into these populations. Children are only separated from adults in this scenario. If there was no way to determine a familial association, was this an ideal situation? Was it an ideal solution? No. The article goes on to explain these facilities, even though they're an improvement, Their grim industrial appearance was redolent of a livestock operation rather than a humane facility. Migrants and some agents soon derided it as La Pereira, the dog kennel. I'm supposed to trill my tongue there, but my thick guttural German tongue can't can't trill. Can't trill. It was adapted to to snarl and and be guttural. You can't do the trilling thing. But the dog kennel, that's what it looked like. That's what those 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 these pictures come from. It's not great. This wasn't the ideal solution, but it was better than it was before. They had food, they had water, they had air conditioning. They weren't outside exposed to the elements. They were better cared for. They were safer. And as the facilities continue to improve, they're still, at the end of the day, cages. You know, there's, there's an argument that even you put these people up into a four-star motel, you put them up into a four-star hotel, put them at the Ritz, 
they're still being detained. They're still being incarcerated as they're being processed. It's still a cage. Okay. What Trump did in the, with these facilities is worse. It was worse. Okay. It's not the same. It's worse. He wanted to attack this very premise that bringing your family was a fast track to getting to stay in this country. So we inverted that system, flipped over the table by making it the default policy to separate children from families as a punishment, not to protect children from traffickers. Not if, you know, oh, this is your uncle. What the fuck is going on here? Just as a matter of course. And in the disastrous run of this program, thousands of minor children were separated from their families. Again, as the routine, as the way things went. And little effort was made to reunite them. The coronavirus outbreak made this a real shit show because these cramped, crowded, poorly supervised sites made containment of the virus difficult. So Biden takes over. Now what? Instantly, no more family separations. Families started coming back across the border. You know, they're no longer afraid of having their children ripped away. That was an effective deterrent, it seems, because of course it was. The Biden administration also tried to spread people out in facilities to help contain the virus, not putting them up uh, on top of each other, not giving a shit about coronavirus. What you know, spread people out socially distant. Right. This has involved reopening some of those problem facilities from the Trump era days. And I admit maybe like the fourteen hundred dollar checks. This is bad optics. But what are the alternatives? The over five hundred children that still haven't been reunited with their families. Do you let just them go? Just open the doors and be like, be free, little ones in the middle of Texas or Arizona or Florida. Do you put them in the foster care? Do you deport them back to Mexico? These are children. You can't just fling open cages and let them go and pat yourself on the back because they're not in cages anymore. These reopened facilities aren't as good as permanent indoor facilities. But if we kept them in the better facilities, they wouldn't be able to socially distance themselves. You can build more and better facilities, but that takes time. This isn't the fucking Federation. We don't have replicator technology. In the reopened facilities, meanwhile, they have hospital services. They've got barbers. They've got salons. There are classrooms with teachers. They have their own dedicated emergency services like fire trucks and ambulances. They have their own clean water supply. These are an improvement of the situation. A better option out of a slew of bad ones. Okay. Long term, of course, there are plans to better deal with this. In his first month in office, Biden signed several executive orders reversing many of the worst Trump border policies. A few weeks ago, he and the House Democrats introduced a plan that would provide a path to citizenship for over 11 million undocumented immigrants. And of course, we need better and more facilities. We need more social workers to process people's immigration and asylum claims. But that takes time to put together weeks, months, maybe years. What do you do in the meantime? Well, here's an idea. Let's go to our Twitter accounts and say that Biden's putting kids in cages, just like Trump. And anyone that tries to correct you, all you got to do is smuggle a retort. <laughs> Guess when you're complaining about cages, you just prefer to gilded ones. Maybe you feel bad for voting for Biden now. Maybe you decide, fuck politics. I'm never participating in this process again. I don't want this shit on my conscience. But what if you had ultimate executive power? What if you were the president and can do whatever you wanted? Would you just disband ICE and the Department of Homeland Security, erase the border, let everybody in? 
What do you do in two years when you lose the House and the Senate to these incredibly unpopular policies when you lose the White House four years later? If you let the children out of their cages, what do you do when the news reports come in about them being homeless, about them being trafficked by cartel members in Mexico and pimps in America, about them freezing to death in the blizzard that just hit the American South? What do you do? You know, well-meaning people back in the day before Twitter fucked up handling many a humanitarian crisis. One example I can think of back in the closing weeks and months of World War II, when the Allied soldiers had reached the concentration camps and began uh, the process of liberation, liberating them. And they were confronted with just mounds of skeletal bodies awaiting burial and inside stuffed in cramped cell blocks uh, long neglected, overworked, underfed, were even more skeletal bodies. These still alive, miraculously. And they couldn't believe it. Hard men suffering years of neglect and abuse and dehumanization through war, fighting many battles from Normandy to this point, were completely broken by the things that they saw, the conditions that these people were left in. It sickened them. Openly, they were openly weeping. On the day they arrived, troops began to pile up the rations desperately. What, what do you got? You got candy? You got this? You got that? Let's put it all by. Let's get these people. Let's get these people fed. We can't wait for emergency services to arrive. They're, they're, they're dying right now. They gave these victims everything they had in order to save them. But something wild happened. These people they're trying to help, they started dying rapidly. I get the following from the uh, podcast Skeptoid, which you can find in the show notes. But here's a couple choice quotes. Some inmates had been starved for so long that they'd lost the ability to digest the rations that well-meaning British soldiers offered them. Within minutes of taking the biscuit, some inmates just passed away. One British doctor told the Imperial War Museum how they attempted to help. The food we got, they said, breaking open their rations, it was just not right for these people. Their stomachs couldn't take anything. The best we could do was make a thin gruel. Some people tried to eat the real stuff right away. And I'm afraid it was too much. And it probably killed them. It was a kindness to give them something, though it was the wrong kind of kindness. It's interesting to think about if you would go back in time and observe these soldiers without knowing anything about the situation. You saw some, they're giving these prisoners their their beef stew rations, their mashed potatoes and carrots, uh, their candy bars, their salted pork. They're giving them everything, everything they got. They're so moved. Then there's these prisoners gratefully gulping all this down, asking for more. And you see this other group off to the side, and they're handing out thin gruel by the teaspoonful to, to prisoners begging for more, desperate for more, right? Which of these groups are you on board with? You know, which of the groups you say is, is doing the most good? Which is doing more to help the prisoners? If you saw this photo with, with the headline, stingy soldiers withhold their best from starving POWs, what conclusion would you draw? Well, they didn't know this then. We do know this now. There's a thing called refeeding syndrome. When you get a person deprived and starved for a long time, their body undergoes many changes. The body desperately tries to keep the brain and the cardiovascular system going as long as it can. It's clinging to life it's, as it's breaking apart sinew and muscle and bone. To do this, the electrolyte balance of the body gets thrown off. They're at a critical state. And if you rapidly reintroduce a regular diet to to people going uh, undergoing these advanced uh, forms of starvation, they will die. It causes their electrolytes to 
instantly crashed their brain chemistry is no longer able to regulate its chemistry. They suffer strokes, massive heart attacks, all the delicate electrochemical things, the processes, the metabolism, the body just just stop working. It's just massive monkey wrench thrown into the rent to, to the works. And the source continues. The emergency response effort was massive, but still receiving 60,000 critical patients all at once is a pretty tall order. 14,000 of these newly liberated prisoners died after their liberation. The rate was even worse at other camps. From the Holocaust Encyclopedia, there's a quote, Allied troops, physicians, and relief workers tried to provide nourishment for the surviving prisoners, but many of them were too weak to digest food and could not be saved. In spite of the liberators' best efforts, many camp survivors died. Half of the prisoners discovered alive in Auschwitz would die within a few days of being freed. It wasn't all refeeding. There's also disease and just general neglect. But imagine that a quarter to a half of the Jews, the Romani, the gay and lesbian prisoners, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, that's right. Hitler really had a hate boner for J-dubs for their political neutrality. They got purple triangles and everything. Look it up. It's interesting to read. But imagine this. You're one of these people. You survived the horrors of Nazi Germany. Your camp has been liberated by the Americans, by the Brits, the Canadians, Russians, whatever. And two days later, you die inside of the promised land because someone gave you a Hershey bar and you did what every cell in your body was screaming to do to eat the whole damn thing and demand more. It's a kindness to give them something, but it's the wrong kind of kindness. What are we doing, you know, as people when we say that Republicans and Democrats are the same thing, that Joseph Biden is the same as Trump. Are we doing it out of ignorance? Are we doing it out of malice? Are we doing it because we think this is the way to help people? This is the way to be politically effective. This is the way to apply pressure. But are we at risk of engaging in this rhetoric and having ourselves or other people get so cynical that they drop out of political participation because we just can't keep choosing the best option we're presented with if there's no perfect ones or if they're all kind of bad? Is this 30-year struggle making this slow and painful progress, is it too much for us? I, I worry about that. Because again, go back, what are our options? Disenfranchise people we disagree with, keep them from voting. Immoral, illegal. Drop out of politics altogether to keep our hands morally clean. Or work diligently at convincing people there are better ways. Support monetarily people who are doing that work, who are doing the organizing, the communication, the running political campaigns, work hard at our local level to get better politics, better candidates, make our best choices at the state and national level. It's a broken record, but trust that consistent hard work amongst people of goodwill are eventually going to get us those better choices. Maybe even someday good choices, maybe even great choices eventually. Wouldn't that be amazing to have an array of uh, appealing candidates so we could vote for our conscious and not have to worry about a vote for one going to fuck over the chance, the chances of getting a decent one or it's going to make a, the worst guy get to the, the, the lead the country. What if we did that work? You know, long term, we got to end the war on drugs that fuels so much of the misery south of our border. We got to be generous with economic and other aid to, to help give our neighbors to the South and all over the world a leg up and help them overcome the legacy of colonialism that they're still fighting, the political instability that we have had no small part in contributing to. And long, long term, 
We need to, you know, continue to unite our continents all across the globe. European Union, African Union, South American Union, North American Union, the American Union, the African Middle East Union, the African Eastern Union, like more and more getting together and together and breaking down these barriers. Right. Long, long term. That's what we need to do to get to the, the, the Star Trek future, which brings us to Biden bombing Syria. The last thing I want to talk about because everybody on Twitter is saying Joe Biden's a war criminal. Republicans, Democrats, they're the same. Republicans bomb children. Democrats bomb children with bombs that have Black Lives Matter and coexist stickers pasted on the side of them, right? Everybody voted for Biden. You got blood on your hands. You know, first blood's been struck. And here's the part where I go forth and I tell you the nuanced position that it's actually okay that he did this because the expert foreign policy opinion seems to be that it was a wise, measured, judicial use of force, a precision strike on legitimate military targets against actual enemy combatants, was not, in fact, bombing a wedding party or a school or a hospital. All these things, uh, as far as I can tell, actually true. But I can't do it because here I, I disagree with the experts. I think that sometimes when you're in a tit for tat situation, you know, uh, eventually, if you want to stop trading punches, you either got to knock the other person out or you got to take a few punches yourself to disengage. And what is knocking like Iran out look like? What is knocking Russia out look like? Because that's who we're really fighting with over all these attacks in Syria. To me, knocking them out looks like embroiling ourselves into a global war, something that we got to avoid at all costs in the nuclear age. We can't go toe to toe with China or Russia. It would be madness. It's, it's Dr. Strangelove shit. So that means, you know, as one of the strongest countries in the world, we might need to take a few punches. They launched some rocket attacks and allied bases. There's no casualties. It feels like a punch we can take, especially considering the behavior we've shown in the past few years where we unilaterally pull out of the nuclear deal with Iran that everyone, including our own investigators, said they were complying with, especially since we've assassinated heads of state at allied countries, civilian airports again in the last few years. The strongest people are the ones best able to take the punches best able to lower tensions, bring people back to the table, convince them that we're still a country that can be trusted with treaties and alliances, despite our recent track record, because the other two alternatives are the Middle East and places like Syria, especially continuing to be just screwed permanently. Or we knock them out, which expert consensus on that seems to be pretty grim, pretty grim. So I I don't. I don't disagree with the analysis of the situation. I just disagree with like the strategy moving forward. And and maybe maybe I'm wrong. I mean, long term, we have all kinds of hot spots that need to be addressed. What do we do about Seoul and South Korea in general being held hostage by North Korea? What do we do about potential Chinese aggression against Taiwan? How do we stop Russia and other foreign countries from uh, launching cyber attacks against us and our allies, other democratic countries around the world? We just can't do it alone. 
We got to make partnerships with other countries. We don't turn our backs on trade negotiations and the UN. We got to be generous with our economic aid and build countries stronger through mutual beneficial deals rather than these one-sided exploitations. It's been the norm. We continue to build these relationships over a long period of time, say, I don't know, 30 years or so, until we have a foundation for unions of countries across Europe, Asia, Africa, the Americas, all working together. We keep strengthening those ties until we're comfortable sharing data and cultures and economies. And we get closer knit until hundreds of years from now, we are truly united as a globe under laws that protect the rights of individuals, but also recognize that we share all of us the same atmosphere all of us the same land on this planet, all of its resources, that what we do in China affects America, what we do here in America affects Europe. And in fact, this whole solar system belongs to us, all of us. This whole universe is our birthright. It belongs to all of us. We should all have a say in what we do with it. And then, I don't know, we meet the Klingons and Romulans and they think it all belongs to them and I guess we start over, right? But you know what? That's Kirk and Picard's problem. All we got to focus on is the next 30 years. And I also know that there's lines that have to be drawn. When I say take a punch, I mean right now, if the destruction's purely in terms of assets and properties, do we really need to launch a deadly strike that kills 30 of them? You know, we have a couple poorly aimed missiles that uh, don't kill anyone, but we have to have a strike that, that blows out a squad of their guys. But if servicemen and women die in, in the attack... You probably got to do something. That's just where we're at right now. But again, I think we need to recognize that we have killed political leaders and civilians with impunity and nothing ever really bad happens to us. The smaller, weaker people are taking the punches. Obama did kill that wedding party with a drone strike that one time, you know? Oops, our bad. Obama wasn't tried at The Hague. He didn't face international sanctions. That crippled our country's economy and hurt common Americans. I mean, maybe one day we'll, we'll be strong enough to take a real hard punch, confident that our allies will support us and we'll find nonviolent ways to approach things. But we're not living in that day. We can't take a punch that would kill uh, American servicemen and women. We couldn't certainly take a punch like 9-11. Shouldn't expect that. But are there some punches we can absorb? Is that what you need to do? Someone has to be the one that stops punching back. Someone has to, pardon me for quoting Jesus, turn the other cheek. You know, there is some wisdom there. And we're the biggest, toughest person, country on the planet. Probably should be us taking some of those punches. I don't know. Maybe that's just me being a loony leftist. Some real hippy dippy bullshit. I, I, you know, I, I, I cop that, right? I'm just this one guy. It's just what I think. I'm not setting the minimum wage. I'm not the one solving the border crisis. I don't call on airstrikes. I don't need to win elections. I don't need to maintain political power. I'm just getting started, getting involved in my local community, trying to make things better for my neighbors in my state. If you're in the same state of me regarding your political power, trying to figure out how to flex it, maybe you can do the same for your neighbors and your state. Maybe it's time for all of us to stop following Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and AOC and Biden and Schumer and Pelosi and all of our other problematic faves on Twitter and start adding some local politicians and journalists and pay attention to what's happening in our own backyards. Get involved there. In the meantime, I'm going to keep trying to make the best choices I'm presented with at the national level, and I really hope y'all do the same. 
those of you saying fuck elections, fuck Biden, fuck the Democrats in four years, I hope you do come back and you vote for the best option that you have available. Not for what you wish you could do, but what's actually there. Make the best of whatever bad choice you got. Because again, remember, when I was encouraging everybody to register to vote and participate in democracy last year, I never said that Biden was the savior. I never said he was the solution. Hell, he's not even my guy in the previous election cycle. And even my guy, Bernie, if he'd gotten elected as president in some kind of improbable democratic socialist miracle, he wouldn't be the one to solve everything. Because the ultimate problem is not enough Americans are on our side in these important issues. Again, what's the solution? Consistent engagement with the political process over the next 30 years. Small progress, frequent setbacks, consistent engagement with our friends, our family, our neighbors, not shrinking away from those difficult conversations, not abandoning them, not canceling them, engaging with them. And I wouldn't even bother defending Biden if it weren't for me being genuinely afraid that some of us are going to just give up because it turns out he's not a far left candidate like people were saying, like the Republicans were saying before the election. He's not able to solve all of our problems in the first hundred days or the first four years. But hey, Again, I don't know. Maybe you think this is the best political strategy for change. Maybe there's people out there making credible political threats on Twitter to move politicians left. Maybe it won't blow up in in our faces and make us and all of our friends and our circles of followers more apathetic about political engagement. I don't know. I mean, you do you at the end of the day. We'll see how it goes. But I do worry. I do worry about the cynicism and apathy and what it's going to mean two years from now, four years from now. But we'll see how it goes. And that's the podcast for this week. I am sorry it's late. I do still have another three right turns in the can. I could have gone and, and been on time. Uh, I got some more interesting interviews lined up, but I, I I really saw a lot of stuff stacking up and I wanted to comment on it. And I know a lot of people were waiting for me to comment on it and, and talk about it. And I'd rather I'd rather be a little bit late with something that feels of the time and timely and relevant um, as much as I do hate doing getting bogged down into the current event stuff. I'd rather do that than put out something that's on time and, and maybe feels like it's missing a moment, you know? But anyway, I'm, I'm done now with the groundhog day stuff, the push to partner thing over on Twitter uh, on, on, or on Twitch. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm bald move. That's over with. So I'm really looking forward now to finally getting to do some of that live Swiss bold streaming. But I've been talking about, uh, but I'm also still really super busy. Speaking of local engagement, as you know, uh, as, as I, I, I talked about resolving in the New Year's resolution podcast, I joined up with Ranked to Vote Ohio organization to try to get ranked choice voting as a ballot initiative. Their goal is the 2022 elections. Pretty ambitious. And wouldn't you know it? I got involved. I, I volunteered and almost immediately they shunted me off to the newly formed podcast arm of their communication committee. Imagine that. I'm working, working in the podcast minds with them. Uh, so last week, I ended up writing a couple scripts for their podcast that they're going to start helping to promote uh, ranked choice uh, voting um, in their group um, and then tell people about their activities and how they can volunteer, get people excited. Uh, I'm not going to be the host for those podcasts, but I am hard at work arranging production, writing scripts. I talked Jim into letting Bald Move host their podcast. It's going to save him some money and give him a lot of like really, really big uh, kind of next generation features. Um, and it looks like that's all going to happen. I'm really excited about that. 
I got to admit, you know, and some people have asked me about this is, is should I be doing something different with my time or my money? There's so many problems locally to, to, to worry about. But then I think about how razor thin our elections are, especially at the state and local levels. I think about how many thousands, tens of thousands of votes get wasted each year on third parties in this stupid two system, first passed apart, two party system, first past the post. If I can talk for a minute. Uh, how many votes are wasted on, on third parties and, and how Maine and Alaska are already doing things better. And I think, yeah, we can do this and it will make things a tiny bit better. It will give people access to better candidates. We'll have broader, more robust political opinions and conversations. It's going to be easier to forge alliances and govern by consensus. That's the hope anyway. If you're a Buckeye and you think you'd like to help, RankToVoteOhio.org is the place to go to volunteer and give them some cash because we need people, power, and money to make this thing uh, get over the uh, finish line. And I'll probably be interviewing some folks from Rank to Vote Ohio um, in, in the coming months uh, and this year. Fascinating stuff I got access to. I got uh, the the people that just uh, did the failed Rank the vote uh, ranked choice voting um, uh, legislation in Massachusetts have this massive research treasure trove, this Google drive that just has all these case studies and, and implementations of ranked choice voting around the world and how it went right in Maine and Alaska and how it went wrong and comparative studies of other voting system. It's, it's fascinating. It's, it's been worth it getting involved just to get some of that information. I'm really excited to share some of it with you um, and continue to work on, on that, that side of the podcast project. So that's speaking of local action, speaking of hippy dippy bullshit. We were just talking about that a few minutes ago. I've been invited to the hippy dippy roundtable debate tryout edition uh, next weekend. And if you don't know, uh, the hippy dippy roundtable is one of the biggest open debate shows on YouTube and Twitch. Uh, their main event Friday, uh, those those Friday shows, Friday evening shows get huge views, big names participating. You've heard Bastiat, Bosch. Des- uh, um, uh, uh, socialism done left uh, destiny um, a, a lot of these people get uh, you know on these shows and there's a lot of fascinating conversation and, and I'm at the I, I guess is the farm league version of that you know if I do well on the Sunday night I'll get I'll get I'll get called up for the big show you know so if, if you want to help me with that I'm going to be on this Sunday uh, starting at 6 p.m. Eastern this Sunday again March 14th I'm going to be on there debating various topics I haven't got the topic list yet but I'm going to be with five other, uh, some combination of liberals, communists, conservatives, socialists, neocons. Who knows? It gets kind of wild sometimes <laughs> with that many people on a panel show. But I'm genuinely excited and curious to see, you know, I, I got more of a laid back uh, approach than a lot of people do. I, I'm, I'm, wor- I'm wondering how that's going to that's going to carry over. Uh, but I'm going to be live streaming my side of the conversation, of course, over at YouTube.com slash and I'll post links to the actual debate as well as the topics we're going to be considering on, on my Twitter and my Swizzbolds uh, Twitter um, as we get closer to that event. And uh, I, I'm really excited about it. And once again, uh, speaking of support, <laughs> I'll do that uh, transition one more time. The best way to support the podcast and what we do here, uh, help us grow, spread our Star Trek style democracy and economic ideals, uh, further those thoughts is to head to patreon.com slash and join the community there. You can access our monthly live streams from there, as well as over a year of archive premium content and get many other benefits as well, uh, such as getting your name read in the form of thanks at the end of every podcast. And, oh, I lied. Speaking of getting your name read, one more time I go to that well. 
This is where I personally thank all the Fred level patrons and supporters. So special thanks go out to Arvin Rao, Brian Rasmussen, David Satterley, Brandon DeVito, Mark Hahn, George P. Burdell, Angela Morano, Jordan Hoyt, Jason Schoolcraft, James Taylor, Sarah McDonald, Robert Bullock, Frederick Hurley, Anoka Jung, Laura L., Greg Rasp, Jared Harrelman, Jason M. Klug, Kluge, uh, Slava Kraseljevic, Doug Campen, and Kira. I welcomed all the, the new neighbors this week. I, I saw a couple of new faces this month, and I hope to see you on this month's live stream, which we haven't got scheduled yet, but I know it's coming up real soon. So be sure to keep an eye on your inbox for that Patreon post coming out and Swizzbold's Twitter to keep up with the latest on that because it's coming up real soon and it's a lot of fun. I'll be back in a couple of weeks for some more viewpoints and thoughts and encouragement to consider. Until then, please keep your eyes on the prize. Remember, it took us a long time to get this fucked up and backwards. It's going to take a long time to get us this straightened out and, and flying right. So keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your mindset on the long haul. Make sure you stay politically effective. Make sure you stay engaged. Don't give up to cynicism, despair, and apathy. And keeping in mind all that, also try to find the time to have a great week. I'll see you in a few.